Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Amidst an ongoing pandemic, supply chain failures, rising energy prices, political turmoil, global power shifts, and climate change, it's perhaps an understatement to say the world is in disarray. In her new book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, Cambridge professor of political economy Helen Thompson analyzes the intersecting energy, financial, and democratic crises facing our world today and reveals the disruptions that have led us to this turbulent point. As I mentioned, Helen Thompson's professor of political comedy uh, at uh, Cambridge University. Uh, she was a regular c- contributor to the podcast Talking Politics and has written articles for London Review of Books, New York Times, and Financial Times, author of several previous books as well. Uh, professor Thompson, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Tom. It really is. So are you speaking to us from Cambridge? No, I'm in South London. Okay, South London. Very good. And through the magic of uh, Zoom, we're able to, to talk. Thanks so much. Uh, you, you uh, I think we were talking yesterday, you, you've you wrapped up that podcast, apparently. Yeah, we finished um, in early March. Um, we've been doing it for seven years, actually, on and off with its um, predecessor. And we decided that you know, we all needed to do some new things and that perhaps we weren't as you know, equipped to deal with the, the world as it changed, you know, with the pandemic in the first instance, because we decided to finish it before the war in Ukraine um, started as we'd been with how we started, which a lot of which was to talk about British politics and, and Brexit, which we felt we were better equipped to do. Oh, very good. Um, so I want to, uh, we'll be talking about Ukraine as we go along, Ukraine features in the book, Russia, of course, mm-hmm. um, Ukraine very centrally located, um, geographically and politically. Uh, anything you'd like to say in general about Ukraine is uh, at the beginning here? Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say is, is that you know, I published this book in the United Kingdom on the day that the invasion took place, the Russia invaded um, Ukraine, which was actually quite, in some ways, quite psychologically difficult to deal with, um, because I had a, a history, a long history in a way, both to Ukraine's problems as an independent state in the post-Cold War world after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and why um, the European Union and the United Kingdom to some extent um, as well, would struggle to deal with Russia um, because of the energy dependency of many European countries on Russia. And we've seen just how fierce that energy constraint is in the way in which European countries have been able to respond. So although there's lots of ways in which you could say that the European Union um, and the United States and the United Kingdom have declared financial war on Russia, um, they've not been able to do the one thing that would most hurt the Russian economy, which is to stop buying for the Europeans to stop buying Russian oil, gas, and coal. Do you look in the future? Do you right now? It seems like the West is united. Uh, you know, it, beyond which, uh, at least I thought they <laughs> they could get to. Uh, it's really the invasion of Ukraine has really galvanized the you know the, the mind, the will of the West. But going forward, that there is a dependence there, right? A heavy dependence. Uh, do you think they'll be able to to make some of these sanctions stick? I think that the dependence is going to be in the medium term, even in the medium term, I should say, pretty difficult to break, um, particularly where gas is concerned because it's happening, the shock to European energy markets is happening at the same time in which China's gas demand is still accelerating. Uh, and that means there's going to be intense competition between Asian countries and European countries for liquid natural gas um, imports. I think in terms of the unity of the West, it can be a bit overdone. In one sense, what's happened is is that 
one particular worldview in the West articulated most clearly in Berlin, but in a somewhat different degree in Paris is really shattered as a result of the, the crisis. I mean, the German assumption was that something like this couldn't happen that because you, Putin would never do something like this, that it was safe to have an energy relationship with Russia. And indeed, the, in the German view, going back to the 1970s, that energy dependency, that energy interdependency, that's would be a better way of describing it, was supposed to anchor a positive relationship between, at least between Germany and Russia and Germany and the Soviet Union, going back to the, the 1970s. And that's gone. And if you listen to what Macron had been saying, the French president had been saying um, in the course of 2019, he was basically staking the entirety of the European project going forward on détente with Russia. He said that that was necessary in order to stop Europe disappearing between the United States and China. And, and again, that that position has shattered. So there's more unity uh, in the NATO and in the European Union, but it is because the positions that were taken by the French and the Germans prior to this have shown to be pretty erroneous. So that, that, that view is shattered, but uh, the, there are pressures on that side, aren't there? Including the oil and gas dependence. Yeah, I mean, clearly the Germans would like to do something about it. I mean, the first response in the first few days, um, which in some sense was quite extraordinary coming out of, of, of Germany, um, was to say that we, we are going to work to end gas, or not. it's not just gas dependency, but energy dependency upon um, Russia. Uh, and Germany, that has never built until now any liquid natural gas port such that it could import American shale gas. Schultz announced, the German chancellor announced, that Germany would be building two ports. But these take time, uh, and as I said, in the meantime, is the competition for gas supply is actually more intense than it's ever been because China is it still undergoing an energy change where gas is concerned. Um, what does this do going forward for for European unity and and uh, maybe fold in NATO here? You know, which is related. Um, mm. Well, I think what we what we are likely to see where both the European Union and NATO um, are concerned in terms of tensions is in the medium term is is really what to do about Turkey's position in all this because what NATO, what recent events have shown is is that Turkey is an indispensable member of NATO on the security side. Turkey has been able to um, control access to the Black Sea and ensured that only Russian um, warships that are, are coming back to base in the Black Sea can be allowed um, in. Um, and that's pretty important. Um, Turkey has been also supplying um, Ukraine with some very effective drones. Um, so the lesson in this sense, in a military sense, is absolutely Turkey is necessary for NATO. But again, if you go back to what Macron was saying in 2019, he was basically saying he wanted Turkey outside of NATO. And the European Union has never been able to resolve the question of like how to say no to Turkey joining. It's clear Turkey is not going to join the, the European Union. But at the same time, as this question has been hanging over the European Union for a very long time, it can't actually just definitively say no to, to, to Turkish um, accession. And then there's the question of the East Mediterranean, whether there's a lot of tensions between Turkey and other countries, not least between Turkey and um, France. So I, I think that this apparent newfound unity of NATO and European Union is quickly going to run into one of its other geopolitical long-term issues, which is Turkey. What do you? We, we don't know how the war is going to end here, right? We don't know what the future is, but uh, 
you know, with this background, with this history, with these pressures, um, you think there's any chance at all that uh, Ukraine is invited into the EU? I think if what happens, and obviously I, I, I don't pretend to know what militarily is going to happen. If it, if the end result in Ukraine is the partition effectively of Ukraine, such that the parts of it that where where Russia has essentially established military control um, become part of Russia um, and Western U- Ukraine is left as the independent what's left of the independent Ukrainian state, it'd be incredibly difficult for the EU to say no to Ukraine joining. I mean, it would need an awful lot of um, economic support um, and the EU would be really the only association that could provide that. But by the same very measure, the um, neediness, I don't mean that in a prerogative sense, uh, of Ukraine economically would make absorbing Ukraine, Ukraine into the European Union incredibly difficult. And it's clear that there is not particular enthusiasm either in Berlin or in Paris um, about that prospect. And then that would raise a question as to whether this independent Ukraine would also need to be a member of NATO, because the basic premise of the European Union in terms of full membership is is that you need to be in NATO if you're an East European country sitting between Germany and Russia. So if you go back to the um, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, they all joined NATO first and then joined the European Union. If you look at the Baltics, they joined the European Union and NATO at the same time. For, for an independent Ukraine to be in the EU and outside NATO, that's incredibly difficult, I think. But at the same time, we know what the Russian view is of Ukraine's membership of NATO. So there's still a lot of really difficult questions for Western governments to get to grips with. Indeed, also that the Ukrainian for the Ukrainian government to get to grips with about what realistic options are here. I want to get into some of the history, fascinating history uh, in, in the book. But uh, one more question at current uh, times. Are we talking about Ukraine, you know, yes or no in the EU? I'm curious about UK. Um, what, uh, what's the general feeling now after all the dust is, I don't know if the dust even has settled with Brexit. Uh. Well, I, I think that on the beginning of the of the war, well, actually, I would say in the weeks before um, the war, there was a sense in the, in the, in the UK and in commentary from other countries in the European Union that the UK was back in the game where European politics was, European geopolitics, I mean, by that was concerned because the UK was doing a lot to, to send weapons to you, defensive weapons to Ukraine before the invasion took place in pretty sharp contrast to German attitudes. So in that sense, I think that the UK's more hawkish position on Russia in relation to Ukraine has been um, vindicated and there was some talk about um, Boris Johnson being invited to an EU summit but he made some you know rather stupid remarks um, the other day um, comparing um, Ukrainians resistance to Russia with Britain's exit from the European um, Union so <laughs> that, that I, I don't think that that invitation will now will now will, will now come but I think what it's going to do is it's going to really focus minds in the UK and to some extent in the EU too on what the future security relationship is between the United Kingdom and the European Union because when the um, trade talks took place so those talks didn't work out the future economic relationship between the UK and the European Union after the transition agreement had come to um, an end, then the UK government's position was to say, we're not talking about security, we're going to do it on an ad hoc 
basis, we don't want a formal security partnership. So I think it, in this new security environment in Europe, I don't think it would be surprising if there's an attempt to, or if, there's, if that question is revisited and there isn't some possibility now of a more formal security partnership between the UK and the and the European Union. Obviously, it exists between the UK and the EU member states that are in NATO, but not all the EU states are in NATO. Oh, I told you only one more. One more, I can't resist, okay. of, of current current events. Um, uh, of course, we can't predict the future. Do you think Boris Johnson is going to survive this latest uh, scandal, the parties during COVID, Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is in this set, I mean, to be honest, I thought, Tom, that he was going to survive it more likely than not before the war um, started. This, the whole thing was like dragging on too long. Um, and I thought that from the point of view of the Conservative Party, it made much more sense to wait to see what happened in the local elections that are coming up in May, rather than engaging in a, in a party coup against him, particularly given the role of his former um, advisor, Dominic Cummings, in bringing about this whole um, situation. But there's no doubt now that uh, here that Partygate is, I wouldn't say it's completely forgotten about, but it's completely been overtaken um, by um, by the war to the same in the same way really in which COVID has been completely overtaken by the war here, despite the fact that the COVID numbers, uh, uh, infection numbers have been going up quite considerably over the last um, few um, weeks. So in that sense, um, UK politics has become about um, Russia. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed like he was playing for time, which is which is the you know the only play he had. It seemed like, yeah. and it seems like maybe he's been successful. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's worked for that. Yeah, <laughs> it's worked. Yeah, uh, let's take a quick break, and we come back. We'll dive right into the book. Um, the, the book is uh, fascinating um, history and uh, looking at uh, the disruptions that have led us to this uh, turbulent point that we find ourselves in. It's called Disorder: Hard Times in the Twenty First Century. The author is Cambridge professor of political economy Helen Thompson, who uh, joins us from London, um, and we'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Uh, it's an understatement to say the world is in disarray. A lot of disruptions uh, in uh, democracy, the economy, um, and many areas of our lives. And in her new book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, Cambridge professor of political economy Helen Thompson analyzes the intersecting energy, financial, and democratic crises facing our world today and reveals the disruptions that have led us to this turbulent point. She's joining us by Zoom uh, from London. Uh, so, uh, Professor Thompson, um, I, I was uh, struck by the, the fact you say that uh, you took the subtitle of the book from Dickens, I guess, illustrating the more things change, the more they stay the same. Continuity there. Tell us about this. Uh, partly partly that. Partly is I'm a huge Dickens fan, uh, and, uh, and Hard Times, the novel, Dickens' novel Hard Times, I, I, I mean by that, was the book, though, that put me off Dickens for a more than a decade <laughs> and so it's partly a sort of a joke with myself uh, about how i couldn't see what was so penetrating about the book it's also i think because it's a book about coal hard times dickens hard times i mean uh, and a coal created industrial civilization and as you know um, tom i finished the book by talking about the energy transition and the prospect of another energy transformation green um, energy so i like that analogy as well uh, by the way what do what do you like about dickens so much where to start uh, um 
I think that he has an extraordinary ability or he had an extraordinary ability to move between the imaginative and the mythical realm. And I would actually stress it as a mythical realm and really concrete, specific things about the age in which he um, lived. And he didn't see those things as contradictory. So in some sense, there's something very medieval um, about Dickens' imagination, all these sort of Virgin Mary characters and these, you know, devil's grotesques. Uh, and at the same time, there's something obviously very of the middle of the 19th century in England, particularly the way in which he writes um, about London, this enormous city which he sees in terms of like um, Babylon. So it's the way in which he moves between the concrete and the mythical that I think I'm ultimately most taken by. Mm. Uh, you write at the very beginning of the book, you say the book had its genesis in the summer and autumn of 2016. You go on to say, um, impulse to write this book came from a sense of what I did not understand in the turbulence of that year, but instinctively judged to be geopolitically significant. Uh, tell us about the genesis of this book. Yeah, so in the um, in 2016, I was actually writing um, a short book, um, or at least in the first part of the year that I was, first nine months of the year, I was writing a short book about oil. And I was doing that through the, the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom that took place on the, the, the 23rd of June. So although as a citizen of the United Kingdom, I was very engaged with the the referendum um, question, my analytical mind at the time was absorbed by trying to get this book on oil finish, which is both about the geopolitics of oil and about monetary decision-making, like particularly the Federal Reserve Board's monetary um, decision-making. But I could see that there was a connection between the two things, even though that, that they seemed like a long way away from each other, because the ways in which the European Central Bank and the Bank of England had responded to a big hike in oil prices in 2011 had really set up a macroeconomic divergence between the United Kingdom and the Eurozone that, in my view, played a pretty significant role in taking David Cameron, the then British Prime Minister, onto the on his path to calling a referendum on whether the United Kingdom should stay in the, in the European um, Union or not. So I started from that sort of sense in which Brexit was about a lot more than to do with British politics, and it was about actually in its bigger picture context, more than just actually about the European Union, that there were shifts happening, changes happening, not least in relation to energy that had ramifications of all kinds. The other thing though that happened that year, and in my mind, in terms of the genesis of the book, it was more significant really than Trump's election in uh, November, that I'm not trying to underplay that as a, as a, as a moment, was the failed Turkish coup. Um, in July of 2000 uh, of that year, which uh, came a few weeks after the, the the Brexit referendum. And I remember sitting up, like watching it through the night as it was happening, watching the live media coverage of it. And the moment when it looked that early and was going to fall. And I had a strong sense as I was watching that actually that there wasn't that strong a reaction in the United States to what was happening or indeed perhaps in some number of the other European Union countries. And early on afterwards said, you know, that he felt much better supported by Putin than he did um, by Western leaders. And it looked to me in the weeks after that you could begin to see a significant turn in Turkish policy in that, in Russian direction, despite the fact that Russian, sorry, Turkish foreign and defense policy in that direction, despite the fact um, that Turkey is a member of um, NATO. And so I became really interested in the idea of how the geopolitics of Europe's relationship with Russia and the geopolitics of Europe's relationship with Turkey interacted um, with each other. And in 
in a way, I think that that, that started me on, that started me on um, the geopolitical story that I wanted to tell. And Turkey's role in it also, I think, really, in retrospect, was one of the reasons why I wanted to take the geopolitical history back to the aftermath of the First World War, and indeed, in some sense, the First World War and the run-up to the First World War itself, because it was in the former Ottoman Empire where it would turn out that the world's largest oil reserves lay. Um, but at the end of the First World War and the aftermath of it in terms of what happened to the Ottoman territories, um, Turkey got an independent state out of it, much more so than a, a much rather more significant, larger one than might have looked like the case in 1918. But Turkey wasn't party um, to the, you know, it didn't put that differently, it didn't end up with a territory where the oil was. And that still is part of um, Turkish grievance, certainly as it's articulated by Erdogan now, about the energy situation in the East Mediterranean. So here I could see uh, a relationship between what was going on now uh, and some pretty long history of the 20th century. Well, talk about this uh, the geopolitical pr- prism of oil. Uh, stay there. That's the first part of your book. Um, you say that uh, as the uh, interesting effect of the United States becoming uh, over the past, uh, I don't know, decade or so, the world's largest oil and gas producer. The mm. U- U.S. has, you know, kind of fluctuated, but in recent times, it once again became uh, a big oil and gas producer. Uh, at the same time, you say the uh, U.S. Uh, failed to establish spheres of influence in the Middle East, and then that has led to, uh, you know, a domino effect. Tell us about that. No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you take the um, American energy story where oil and gas is going to, let's just concentrate on oil for the moment, is, you know, American oil production, domestic oil production prior to the shale boom peaked in 1970. Uh, and then from then on, until the shale boom, the United States was on a trajectory to become the world's largest oil um, importer. Uh, and that caused it quite a number of problems in the Middle East, particularly where after, since at the same time that the United States was becoming dependent upon oil from the Middle East, Britain was withdrawing militarily from the Middle East and the United States didn't want to go and take its place. So it became very reliant on Saudi Arabia and Iran in the 70s. And then by the end of the 1970s, as we know, the Iranian revolution took place. So the Iranians actually became an enemy, a hostile um, regime rather than any a regional power that could be at all useful to the United States. So I I then think there's a story that runs from the first Gulf War through to the second Gulf War, where you see that the United States trying to use its military power to put itself in a better position in in the Middle East. But as we know, that in the end doesn't work out. Now, that has a fallout, I think, that runs through the 2000s 